On this episode of Knowledgeable Aging Presents, we talk with Jamie Valvano and hear her heartbreaking yet inspiring story. If the name Valvano rings a bell, her father is Jim Valvano, better known as Jimmy V. This is him winning the 1983 National Basketball Championship while head coach at North Carolina State in his 1993 ESPY speech. Jamie, a breast cancer survivor, has picked up the mantle from her father, who passed away from cancer in 1993 and once spoke of trying to cure cancer by starting the V Foundation for Cancer Research. Now a highly sought-after speaker and advocate, Jamie shares her story with us. Jim Valvano had this larger-than-life personality, a successful basketball coach, sports commentator, and really an inspiration to millions in his battle with cancer. And who can forget the motto, don't give up, don't ever give up? What was Jim Valvano the father like? That's a big question. (laughs) Um, I think there are many stages of my dad's life that I remember growing up in New York, surrounded by a large Italian family and every every occasion, I mean, if it was just somebody's birthday or a baptism or an anniversary, we were always with the whole Valvano clan. And so those memories are really special to me. Copious amounts of pasta were being cooked in the kitchen and the cousins were running around and the men would be just surrounded around this little screen fighting and yelling about any sporting event that was on. And so those are really my childhood memories. And then we kind of move forward into moving to North Carolina and watching my dad kind of flourish as a basketball coach. And unfortunately, he was gone a lot during those years because he was recruiting and coaching. And so that was, you know, a completely different time in our lives. But I remember summers vacationing in Atlantic Beach and the Crab Shack and and all the fun family times that we had together. And, you know, then the the last chapter of his life, really me kind of getting to know him, not just as a dad, but as um, just this larger than life, as you said, personality that inspired so many. And so it's, I can't even kind of put him into any kind of box because he transcends um, even just being, you know, a dad in my life. There's so many uh, ways that he has touched me and continues um, to travel this journey with me. So there, we couldn't even, we don't even have enough time for as many uh, memories as I have about my dad. Take me back, Jamie, to the moment that you found out that your father, or as you called him, your Superman, was diagnosed with cancer. It was such a shock. He was traveling for work as a sports commentator and having a lot of back pain while he was playing golf. And so he decided it was July and he decided that he was going to go and have an MRI scan done. So cancer wasn't even in the realm of possibility. He was 46 years old and otherwise we felt healthy and and he went and had an MRI done and right away the radiologist pointed out that he the dark spots on his spine um, were probably cancer. And so then we met, had further testing and met with an oncologist. And I remember I can so vividly see the scene right now. My mom and I were in the room with him. It was a doctor we had never met before. And my dad was sitting in the corner on a stool and he was just sweating profusely. I think we all knew that it just wasn't good news. And the doctor came in and said, you know, Mr. Valvano, you have adenocarcinoma and probably with 
the the stage that you are at, you probably have about a year to live. And so, you know, to say that we were stunned is just a complete understatement. I don't I don't remember at that moment breaking down and crying or or anything, but I there was one time throughout the whole 10 months of my dad's last year of his life that I saw him cry. And other than that, he was always um, perpetually in motion and planning and thinking and, and dreaming. And, but yeah, that, that moment will always stick with me um, because, you know, I just, as a daughter, you never think you're going to be, I was 20 at the time. You're never, you never think you're going to be privy to something so, so devastating. Um, and, and from a stranger, I mean, I remember they asked, do you have any questions afterwards? And, you know, y- you don't even know what to say because they're really, he really wasn't given much hope at that time. So you were, as you had mentioned, you were 20 years old, you were at NC State. Um, what went into the decision to take on the role of a caregiver? You know, I, I think I've always played that role in my family. I'm the middle child. I don't know what that means, but they always say you know, <laughs> middle child. Um, I have a, a sister who is eight years younger than me. And so she was in middle school. And that's such a difficult, challenging time anyway. Um, my older sister was working and was living on her own. And I was home for the summer. And so it just seems like the natural role for me to play as kind of that caregiver, not only helping my dad, but also being there for my younger sister, who I adore and am so close to her. And it just felt like it was easy for me to leave school and kind of transition into that position. And my dad uh, really, you know, people probably, nobody knows this, but he did, he never wanted to be alone during those 10 months. That was something that was really challenging for our family. If he was at the hospital, he wanted someone to spend the night. If he was up late watching TV, he wanted someone in the room. Mm -hmm. So it really became my mom, um, myself, other friends, and also my grandmother, his, his mom was still alive at the time. And so we kind of became this team where we surrounded him at all times and he kind of was never alone. So I don't think anybody ever asked me to take on that role. I just think because I was already living in the home and it was just such a natural part of my personality to be a nurturer that it was something that I just stepped into gladly. I'd like to stay with the caregiving. I think in society today, um, the mental health and the physical health of the caregiver, whether it's a professional or you know, a personal caregiver, it's often overlooked. So a kind of a two-part question, how did you take care of yourself um, physically and emotionally? And what did you learn about yourself during these this time with your father? Well, you know, what my dad taught me that has served me in so many different areas of my life is, you know, how important it is to have a team around you. you know, as a coach, you know, he always had players and people around him that were helping him. And so really, we we never went a day where we were alone or isolated. Sometimes I thought to myself, really, you know, this is a circus. We have so much going on. Can't we just kind of be alone in our grief and just surround ourselves with family? But my dad thought, that wasn't his his style. He had golfing buddies that came over every day. Uh, one of his closest friends who would come and play chess with him. He um, 
he started painting because he had neuropathy and had trouble with his fingers and sleeping. And so he started painting and would paint at horrible. I mean, you, they look like they were paint by numbers. They were terrible, <laughs> but we would have, a, we had an art show to display the paintings and the whole neighborhood came over and we all dressed up. So really what my dad taught me in that point is that, you know, you can't be alone during these times. And although the team that he assembled, I thought was primarily for him, it served two purposes because it allowed my mom and myself as caregivers to have breaks and also to constantly be surrounded by laughter and fun and life. Because I think when you isolate and it's all about just the treatment or the hospital visits, things like that, you, you, it can become really burdensome and, and overwhelming, but we were never alone. We were never alone. Um, you know, one of my favorite stories is I, my dad, of course, basketball was his passion. And when he would get treatment at Duke, I was there as a caregiver, but I'll always remember just kind of sneaking away whenever um, Coach Mike Krzyzewski would show up and they would talk about practice and my dad would come alive. And so it was really important for me to see that I was part of the team, but I didn't have to do everything. Different people played different roles in his care. And so, you know, there were moments that I stepped up and were precious for me and him to share. But I never felt like it was my total responsibility to be all and everything for him. He had two brothers that I know he really became close to and shared a lot of the more emotional conversations he needed to have. Um, players would stop by. And so I know that's not for everyone. I know probably my dad is just somebody who feeds off of other people and and some people are saying, gosh, you know, we don't want this is a difficult time, challenging time. We don't open our doors. But I will say that it's important as a caregiver for you to have a team of your own separate from the patient where you can talk about what you're experiencing and you can receive love and just kind of be rejuvenated. You cannot make that person your life 24 seven. And, um, you know, whatever it is that excites you, whoever it is that that feeds your soul, make sure that you spend time doing that. I. I really have to tell you that, that I don't remember, I, I really remember almost every single day of that, those 10 months with him being filled with laughter and fun. I mean, it was just every day was fun. Doesn't mean there weren't hard, difficult times, but it was filled with so much life. And that's how my dad lived each day. So I'm not really sure it's anything that I did as a caregiver consciously. It was just the gift that my dad gave us throughout his whole life was to surround us with people to help us know that we were never alone. And so that was that was such a gift. Yeah. I'd like to transition a, a tad, Jamie, to the V Foundation. Now, everybody remembers the, the V, the SB speech, where through with ESPN's help, he's gonna start the V Foundation for Cancer Research. Can yes. you tell me how that came about? Yes, this gladly, because most people don't know this story and they just, you know, they only remember the SB speech moment and think that, it was something that was um, had been planned for so long, and it's just it's amazing. It just shows me the power of one person. So, honestly, almost immediately after my dad being diagnosed, he came home, and I remember him sitting in his office, his home office, and he took out a yellow pad, and he was jotting down ideas and things and people's names. And I thought, 
I, you know, I, I've seen this before. I have no idea what he's doing. And I remember him picking, picking up the phone and calling all sorts of people. And he just wanted a coach mode. And he talked about how he wanted to start an organization that would raise money for cancer research. And he talked to his doctors and he talked to researchers that were at Duke Hospital at the time. And he tried to get as much information as he could. But he said, you know, if you're a business person, could you come and be on my team and help me with this? And if you're from entertainment, could you, sh you know, shed some light on, on the importance of raising money? And he just talked to anybody that would listen and asked them to join this team. And of course, nobody said no. So when the opportunity came for ESPN and ABC to kind of step up and say, we want to partner with you and do this, my dad had already thought in his mind, he knew he wanted a golf tournament as a fundraiser. He knew who he wanted on the board of directors. He knew where he wanted the money to go, which is so key. So a lot of this you know, was already set into motion before that night, but we did not have an office, we had no staff. And my dad gets up that night and I'm in the audience and I watch him give the speech. And all of a sudden all this money started coming in and we thought, oh my gosh, you know, this is a real thing. This, this people are listening to him and they wanna be on his team. And so really he's the one who planted the seed and he's the one who set everything in motion. And what the work that's being done now is all his legacy that he left. It wasn't something that we're doing in his memory. It is something that is being done because he set all of this in motion and he stood up and, you know, courageously shared his battle and asked all of us to be a part of his team. And that's what we're doing. Uh, absolutely. Uh, you were involved, I will understand. And with the V Foundation in the early stages, are, are there still any interaction with you with the V Foundation for Cancer Research today? Yes, I, you know, I was sitting next to him the night that he gave that SB speech, and uh, I, I still, I just, you know, can't believe how he got up there and without any preparation spoke those words. And so I was so passionate about the cause, but I was only twenty at the time, and so I returned and graduated from from college from nc state i became a teacher an educator and i saw what the v foundation was doing and i just thought to myself i have to be a part of this and so i worked at the foundation for probably the first five or six years of its beginnings and got to really see it explode in such a mighty way and couldn't believe it um, but there was part of me that knew that if I stayed at the V Foundation, it was like I was always going to be in my dad's shadow and, you know, and I, as much as I wanted to be there, I knew that I needed to embrace the path that, that, you know, was for me as well. So I left and actually, um, got married, had two boys and became a teacher again, but all the while through the years, I remained active in the foundation. I would attend events. I would um, be at our fundraisers, share stories with people, interact with our researchers and our doctors. And then, of course, you know, the V Foundation started, began to touch me in a more, even more personal way um, later in life. But yeah, I still um, am a huge part of the organization. And what I, what astounds me is that 27 years later, a lot of the same people that my dad asked to be on the board of directors are still part of our team, are still part wow. of our scientific review committee. And so again, it just shows me the power that one person can have when they use their voice and when they ask other people for help. And so, gosh, 
honestly, I don't, I don't want to misspeak the, the numbers, but you know, it's, it's like $350 million has been raised for cancer research. And I get last year, I actually went and met with some of our V scholars and I love it because most of them are, you know, international from, from all over the world. And a lot of them don't even know who Jim Valvano is. They just know the V foundation. And wow. so I love it. I love that the V foundation has a respect, respectable and such a, such a great place in the world of cancer research. And it really doesn't have anything to do with college basketball anymore. Or, or my dad. So it's, it's amazing. So as a family, we're still very, very involved and very supportive, but it's, it's, gotten bigger than anything we ever imagined it would be. Yeah. Uh, you had mentioned your boys. So you have two boys. Uh, Jake is 20. Grant is 17. Yes. I want to talk about Grant. So uh, while you were pregnant, uh, suffered a stroke. Uh, Grant suffered a stroke yes. and has cerebral palsy. Yes. How, how early on did you realize that there were some cognitive impairments with Grant? Well, he obviously he was my second son. And so I was uh, 33 or 30 when he was born actually. And, um, and I had a three-year-old son already. So I kind of knew a little bit about the development and almost immediately I noticed that Grant was not tracking with his eyes. That was our first indication that maybe something was wrong. And I remember going to the doctor and them saying, kids develop at different rates. Don't worry about it. Go home. Made me feel silly as a young mother. But I knew instinctively that something was going on with him. And I, you know, luckily in the area that we live, we have such great hospitals and doctors. So I took him to a pediatric ophthalmologist and they noticed that he had optic nerve damage, which led them to think that there was some brain damage and a scan was done. And so I, we really knew at about three to four months that he had suffered um, an ischemic stroke um, or brain bleed. and they never could tell us why it had happened. They did every test possible and imaginable, and there's nothing wrong with me or him as far as bleeding or clotting issues. Otherwise, he's healthy. They believe it happened very late in the pregnancy, and they said it could be something as simple as a cold that made a you know a, a vessel burst or something to wow. that effect. And so then the first year of his life was basically just doctor's appointments, more testing, and them continuing to uncover more things that were wrong with him and they used words you know like optic nerve hypoplasia and cerebral palsy and developmental delay and special needs and all these words i had never heard to de to describe my my perfect child and it really um it really put a a lot of stress on my health and on my my just every relationship i had and unlike my dad's lesson that he had taught me, I forgot how important team is. And I really isolated because as a young mother, all of my friends were having these healthy, beautiful children and nobody could relate to me. I, nobody had that I knew had a child with special needs. And so I really isolated and became very, very alone. And that was not the right choice for me to make looking back now. But it was, you know, as his mom, I thought it was my responsibility to fix him and to go to all these appointments they told me and occupational therapy and physical therapy. And my whole life was just kind of taken away from me in an instant. And I, I just did not deal with it very well at all. And so it was a, it was definitely a, a difficult, dark time um, in my life. And I 
was really sad that my dad couldn't be there to help me because I knew he would find a way to inspire me and make it okay. If you don't mind, I'd like to talk a little bit more. You had, you're very open about that time when you were trying to fix Grant. What did you mean when you said you were trying to fix Grant? Oh, it was, you know, it's really hard. Anybody who deals with an illness, um, you know, whether it's a child with special needs or an illness that you've had yourself, a lot of times after the crisis is over, everybody else goes back to normal. You know, after we knew what was wrong with him, and and I say wrong with him, again, I, I was in a bad place during that time, and I've learned now that there's nothing wrong with Grant, but, but he wasn't typically developing, and people were just giving me all these diagnoses and, and therapies that needed to happen. And with a child, early intervention is very important, and so they really want you to get in there early and attack everything. And so my you know husband at the time went back to work my mom went back to her life everybody kind of went back to living you know there in their world and i was left i was the person who had to go to all these appointments and sit in these waiting rooms and deal with all of this heartbreaking news and all i could think about was that if i just did enough research if i found the right book if there was a i remember thinking to myself i mean this is how insane i am where I thought he needed to be in a hyperbaric oxygen chamber. And oh. I think anybody who deals with any type of illness, that's what we do. We get out there, we look on the internet, we talk to other people, we do research, and we go off into these crazy tangent tangents of, you know, this is what I need to do. And so in my mind, I remember somebody asking me, what would it take for you to accept Grant just the way he is, allow all of this to unfold as it should? And in my just complete ignorance, I said nothing. Unless my child is perfect, I'm not going to be okay. And so there was this unspoken burden that I put on myself that, um, you know, I was going to make it so that my child was going to be typically developing normal, was not going to have special needs. I just completely rejected that notion. And because of that, I missed so much just. It, just loving him and enjoying him. Um, and it really took another tragedy to occur in my life before I realized um, how stupid I really was <laughs> that I did not, I was not mothering the way that I should. So, um, so yeah, I openly acknowledge that. And it's not just, you know, I want to say it's not just parents of kids who ha have, you know, um, or outside of typically developing realm. As a teacher, I would see parents come in all the time with their children wanting to fix things. You know, my kid is too hyper or my child, you know, isn't good enough at math or can you help with this? And I always just sat there just in complete awe and wanted to just hug these parents and say, you know, we are not the authors of our children's stories. We are not the ones that make every single decision. They are human beings, not robots. And can you sit back and take a breath and just enjoy them and allow, you know, allow them to just become. And um, I just think we, we just live in a society where we want everything really fast and we want solutions. And so my heart breaks for any parent that is struggling with, um, you know, with their children, because I know what it's like to feel like that burden is all on your shoulders. Yeah. Let's fast forward three years or, yeah. you know, from you're 33 years old, you yes. find a lump, you find a lump in your breast. 
take me yeah. to that instant. And did you at all think to yourself, Jamie, that, oh my gosh, my father had cancer, I have, did you draw any parallel at that, just at that, that instant when you found out or your, anything? Well, you know, leading up until, so my dad's cancer, a lot of people don't know that they never found the origin of his cancer okay. at the time. It had spread everywhere. People think he had bone cancer, but nobody at the time in 1993 said to us, this is genetic. You guys need to get tested. He was a man. I'm a woman. I, he didn't, although we, he had cancer in his family, really at that time, they didn't really talk a lot about that. Like what's your history? Um, and so again, that we didn't go forward thinking, oh, we're, there's this dark cloud over our family now and we've got all got to deal with this. We, we had no idea. So my, my two sisters and I, we just go on with life. We really don't, you know, think about anything. Um, and I don't, don't ever remember doing anything preventative as far as, I mean, okay. it certainly didn't smoke and lived a healthy life, but I don't remember thinking to myself, okay, I have to make sure that I don't get cancer. I will say the three years that um, I was raising my son, I was constantly sick. I was constantly under the weather. At one point they thought I had an autoimmune disease. My blood work was always all over the place. It is unbelievable what stress can do to our bodies, you know, mentally and physically. And there was just so much anxiety that I was under at the time. Looking back, you know, it was just a recipe for disaster. But yes, I'm sitting in my bed at 33 and I noticed that there's a lump in my breast, very, very small. It was like one centimeters moved, moved around. And I went to the doctor and they said, don't worry about it. It's probably something to do, you know, with hormones. And so I felt like I had gotten it checked out. But again, and something inside me, just like with Grant, whispered, no, you've got to consult somebody else. And um, it, I called my dad's oncologist on a Friday, um, Dr. Joe Moore from Duke Cancer Center. And I told him that. And he said, OK, we'll, we'll get you in to get um, a, a biopsy right away or whatever. They skipped a mammogram. They went right to an ultrasound. And I remember going to the place and the the person who had looked at the ultrasound closing the door behind me. And I thought, that's, you know, that's not a good sign. So I think there was not a lot of time for me to think about, you know, could this be cancer? It was it. You, it just started, you know, the movement of the appointments and the going to get the test. So then I went from the ultrasound to the biopsy. And I remember a, a stranger again called me at home with the biopsy results and said, you have breast cancer. And so at that point, then starts a meeting with an oncologist, a meeting with a surgeon, you know, it just the whole, the cycle starts. And, but had I not listened to my inner voice and just let it go, who knows what would have happened because I at 33 had never had a mammogram and I had never been told that I was at risk. So there weren't any tests that I was, you know, doing on a regular basis that would have revealed this. Yeah, so the bracket two was relatively new um, yeah. in the mid nineties. So this, I mean, your doctors, I'm sure were, you were kind of learning as they were learning to some degree. What did you learn about this genetic mutation? It was tough. Um, I joke to people now because it's been 14 years that I was a trendsetter because you know, the Angelina Jolie and Christina Applegate and all of these beautiful yeah. women now come forward to talk about BRCA2 and BRCA1, but it's like nobody really wanted to hear about it when I got diagnosed because um, it had not even been discovered when my dad was diagnosed yeah. with 
answer. So, you know, again, to talk about the divine is just, it's amazing. So the gentleman who had been a fellow under my dad's oncologist, um, his name is Paul Kelly Markham. And he, over the 13 years since my dad's diagnosis, had taken a position as the head of genetic breast cancer at Duke um, Hospital Cancer Center. So talk about, you know, somebody you want to get involved with. So I immediately had an appointment with him. And again, the original oncologist, as well as the surgeon said, at this point in the year that I was diagnosed in 2005, there was such a small percentage that they were attributing to genetic. Um, mm-hmm. And so really at that time they said, oh, it's not going to be genetic. Don't worry about it. You're going to have a lumpectomy. This is, you won't even probably have to have chemo. You know, it was just like easy peasy. Everybody was, and then all of a sudden they call me in and I meet with a geneticist and um, Dr. Moore was the one who had pushed to do the genetic testing. And because he had that knowledge and that expertise. So I just was very fortunate. I would not have known to ask for genetic testing because I certainly didn't think my dad had had breast cancer. So again, it just, nothing was clicking yet at the time. Nothing really was hitting. And then basically they had me do a family tree and they tested me, my mom and my sisters and everybody was negative, but me and they sat down. And at the time the woman gave me an envelope, she slid it across the table. And as I opened it up, it basically told me, you know, what gene it was that had been identified that had the mutation. And then it told me the percentages of increase of every other type of cancer that now I was at risk for. And then once again, the question was posed, do you have any questions? <laughs> no, not at all, right? I don't, what, what does this mean? Right. And initially what it meant, because you know you can only take one step at a time. You can't look at the whole picture yet, or you'll get overwhelmed. Was that my simple procedure went from you know a lumpectomy to now at 33, we've got to be really aggressive with you because your percentages of having breast cancer in the other breast, as well as having ovarian cancer, have just gone you know through the roof. And so we've got to be very very aggressive. All of a sudden, it got really serious, and because of that. Um, I felt that there was no chance that I would survive because I felt that because I had the gene, got it from my dad and my dad had died, that therefore that was my fate. That's how I interpreted it because the gene overrode any type of other information they were giving me. So, you know, that's really what the gene did at the time because I didn't know anybody else who had the gene. Nobody. I mean, I really did not know anybody. and so I really felt like that that was it. Like even if I could survive the breast cancer, now you're talking about ovarian cancer and colon cancer and skin cancer. And I thought, well, that's there's no way. There's no way. And I just I really kind of gave up um, pretty pretty early in the treatment plan once I received that news. I'd like to talk a little bit more about the role as a caregiver with your father. So could, did, were you able to incorporate some of the experiences from that in being with your father as you now started your battle in treatment with cancer and as it affected the real-time decisions and actions that you would make? 
was there any type of a, you know, a parallel for you um, with what your father had and what you had and, and as you went forward? Yeah, I definitely think that um, it took me a while. I was really, really angry at my dad. And, you know, that's something that's difficult for me to share because I love him so much and, and miss him so much, but I was really angry. I mean, I was mad. People would come up to me and say early in my, <clears throat> my treatment and diagnosis, don't give up, don't ever give up. And I'd want to punch him in the face because I was like, really, you know, like this is my, I had been such a good daughter. I had taken care of my dad. I'd been a wonderful caregiver. And this is my, you know, gift that I get is, you know, cancer. I, I couldn't believe it. And I felt very isolated from my mom and my sisters and my family because I just felt very picked upon. Um, and at the time I had a five-year-old and a three-year-old son who still wasn't even walking, who had special needs. And I just feel as if it was pretty soon in my my um, diagnosis, probably I had started chemo and I had lost my hair and I would look in the mirror and I felt like I was kind of morphing into my dad. I remember what he looked like at the end of his battle and kind of what he dealt with. And I just felt like that's like the persona that I was taking on. And um, I tell this story often, but I was sitting at the kitchen table crying. My mom was at um, the sink and just a off comment, because we all have different ways of coping. My mom's solution to any problem she believes is just that you need to clean your house basically she is not quite the same inspiring um, person my dad is her inspiration comes from cleaning and so every day she would show up at my house and she would just say well, how about we rearrange your closet or how about we you know do your sock drawer and I would be like mom really like that's not going to help me but that's what that's all she knew to do I mean she had watched her husband go through the same path and down the same road and now she was having to watch her daughter and my mom was just devastated and um and so I'm sitting at the table and she's doing dishes or cleaning the kitchen as she usually did and I just decided I was going to give up I, I thought to myself I'll go ahead and do the treatment but I I can't do this anymore I can't pretend to be my dad everybody wanted me to take on his um role and to be inspiring and to not give up and to just I mean, it was just terrible. And I and I just felt like saying I'm not him and I I can't be positive about all of this and um, just falling apart. I remember every appointment I would go to, I would just cry the whole time. I just, it, I was a complete mess. Nobody would ever make like a lifetime movie about my battle with cancer because it would just be like one actress sitting in a ball crying all at all times because that's all I did. But in that moment, I heard my dad's voice. And you know, you mentioned this before. He said, we're starting the V Foundation for Cancer Research. It may not save my life. It may save my children's lives. It may save someone you love. And it was like I heard him sitting right next to me in that moment. And I, you know, I, I can't make this up because it, it truly happened. And I thought to myself in that moment, you know, what would your dad do with another year? They're telling you that you can survive and you're deciding this is just too hard how dare you? You know, I kind of got mad at myself and I had never heard those words um, quite the way that I did at that moment. Like I could, I could recite the SB speech, but I had always thought it was for someone else. And um, I realized in that moment that my dad took that stage and gave that speech for me. I was the someone he loved 
I was the someone that he wanted to save and he didn't even know. I mean, he prophetically spoken those words, not knowing that I sat in the audience already having a gene inside of me that he had given to me. And so I really decided in that moment that was transformative for me. And what I did instantly was I started to assemble a team and I just, I, I was bold. So many times when we're suffering and when we're in pain, we don't want to ask people for help because we feel like, well, they have a lot going on and I don't want to intrude on their life. But I was just, you know, I asked anyone. I asked my mom to go to treatment with me, my younger sister who I had taken care of um, when she was in middle school, now moved home. As a young woman, she left her life and came home to take care of my children. And she stayed with us for about three or four months while I went through chemo. Um, and my other sister took me to treatment. I had neighbors who delivered food. My 75 year old grandma, I'd be like, Gigi, get in the laundry room right now and do a load of whites. You know, I put her to work. I, you know, there was just nobody who was immune to me asking for help. I remember my mornings were particularly tough and I would wake up and you know, dream about being healthy and then see my reflection in the mirror. So I asked my college roommate, Christine, if she'd call me every morning at 6.45 to kind of get me up and moving because I still wanted to be a mom. And um, she, she was instrumental as being a part of my team. And, and just like those people who my dad asked, there wasn't anyone who said no. Everybody said, yes, we want to be there for you because they loved me, but they didn't know how to help. And so I really was bold in asking for what I needed. And it doesn't mean that the journey was any easier. It was still difficult and I still wanted to give up, but I allowed myself to be loved and carried and cared for by other people. And sometimes that's harder than being the caretaker. Sometimes it's easier to be the one that is helping and in charge and directing, especially for those type A personality peoples. We just love a to-do list. And it's hard to be still and to know that all I needed to do was heal and to accept love. And that's what I did. And that's what I am still doing um, 14 years later. But that's what was instrumental really was, you know, me deciding that I could take my dad's hand. I had to forgive him and my ending could be different than his. And I could allow him to show me um, what it would mean to be a survivor. And he still walks that journey with me today. You're in your mid-30s. You've been a caregiver. You watched your father and his battle with cancer. Your son with special needs. Your battle now with cancer. You're a survivor. What changed with you with regards to your role as a mother? You know, when people ask me how I did you refuse to give up. My boys definitely were kind of the reason why. I remember someone asking me, what would it take for you to be okay with Grant just as he is and and not struggle every single day? And I realized very quickly after my diagnosis, the only thing worse than being a cancer patient was not being there to raise my children. I really wanted to see my sons grow up. And so I remember one of the visions I call it my cutting down the nets moment because my dad always worked to cut down the nets. And my cutting down the nets was to see my son, Jake, graduate from high school. He was five at the time of my diagnosis. And I wanted to be there for his graduation. And I wanted to be there to see Grant walk and become who he was meant to be. 
And so almost immediately, my idea of mothering changed. And I decided that every day, it was just about enjoying my boys. There, there was, there were no rules anymore, and there were no regulations, and there, everything didn't need to be about you know trying to solve some sort of problem. It was more just how can I love these children, and how can I celebrate them, who they are, and um, and so once again, it was all about a team of people. I, for the first time, realized I needed to let more people into Grant's life. And there were therapists, occupational therapists, and physical therapists, and speech therapists. And there were doctors that would come in, and uh, special needs teachers. And there was one doctor who really stands out, and his name was Dr. Gordon Morley, and he was a developmental pediatrician. And it looks like he had done the job for probably like 150 years. I mean, he just looked like he had always been in that hospital, and he had such a way of almost dismissing the parents. It was all about the children and he would just talk to them and interact with them. And I remember one particular time crying to him and just having a complete breakdown and asking him, you know, what kind of life is Grant going to have if he doesn't walk, if he doesn't talk, you know, what, what, what are we doing here? I just really needed some type of encouragement. And he got really just quiet and still. And he looked at me and he said, listen, Grant is going to have an extraordinary life. It might not be the one you imagined for him, but it's going to be extraordinary. And I wish I could tell you I believed it right away, but he planted a seed inside of me. It's just amazing how at the right time a person speaks those words that you need and encourages you. And so I started to just be more open to seeing the extraordinary. I think it's always there, but oftentimes we focus so much on what's missing, the deficit, our needs. You know, we just, we're constantly focused on all of that. And so I decided I'm going to pay attention really closely to, um, and celebrate what Grant does each and every day and realize that it's, it's a journey. It's not going to happen overnight. And um, slowly he started to really do things that they had never imagined he would. And I really recognize that the brain is an amazing thing and that it has the ability to create new neuropathways and these doctors would explain things to me and they would say to me, looking at his MRI or CT scan, he shouldn't be able to do what he's doing, but he's doing it. So let's just move forward. And so I kind of took off that heavy burden that I had as his mom and said, you know what? I'm going to, it's the doctors, it's the therapists, it's the people creating his um, plans at school, you know, I'll do what they ask me to do, but I'm his mom. It's my job to love him and to celebrate him and to believe in him. And I think Grant changed me more than I've ever changed or affected him. He's taught me so much um, over the past 17 years of his life and continues to do so. But um, once again, that team came to the rescue for me and remembering it, you cannot isolate during those times of need. You have to reach out and ask for help. 
And if the people that you're surrounding yourselves, uh, yourself with, your family with, that was one thing that I, I definitely want to say is you have the ability to decide who gets to be on your team. So many times people think, well, that doctor's horrible or that my neighbor really is a bummer or my aunt, every time I talk to her, she brings me down. And what my dad taught me is that some people need to sit on the bench. They're not part of the starting five. And so I have surrounded myself with people in Grant's life, in my life, in my other son's life. Like if, if they are not a part of a united team and they don't see the ultimate vision, you know, that doctor who spoke those words, he was an MVP. I mean, I, he went to the top of the list. If he told me Grant was going to be extraordinary, I wanted him on my team. And so really choose wisely who you allow to impact you on your journey. And if people don't see um, the impossible that can happen, then, you know, maybe you need to select some new people. You need to red shirt or trade that person or <laughs> kick them off your team, I guess. I got, I got to stop you right there. I, That's harsh. I, I've known you for a long time, Jamie, and I know you're not a sports person, but you are really trying with the red shirt and all those. You're doing, you are doing a wonderful job here. I mean, I'm, I'm really proud of you. <laughs> My dad would be so proud of me because I know this much about sports. But I do from recruiting, from watching him recruit. I knew he would, you know, he would recruit with intention. And I really never realized that. I was always one of those people who just wanted to be nice. And sure, you can be a part of our play group. Or sure, you can. I don't want to tell that doctor that he. I don't want him to be my doctor anymore. And it's like, what? You get to pick your team. Come on now. <laughs> That's excellent. That's it's true. Excellent. Um, so I'd like to talk about Grant, if you don't mind. So um, I've got a T-shirt on, which you sent to me. Um, Talk to me about Grant and what you've seen and where he is today. I mean, he's got his own YouTube page. Um, you know, you, we were talking yesterday. He's out there doing burpees. Um, you know, considering what you were told potentially about your son or what you, the fears you had as a young mother to where he is 17 years later. Can you talk about this? Yeah, what Grant has shown me is that sometimes the things that, the very things that we think are going to destroy us are exactly what we need in order to save us and grant has saved me because um he's just taught me so many things it, you know he enabled me to get really still and to live a simple life in that grant's purpose every single day is he wakes up and he says who can i love today or how can i love people today and he has cerebral palsy on the left side of his, his body, his, his uh, left arm and obviously left leg is affected. He has developmental delays. He has uh, vision issues, but I, there's something extraordinary about him that uh, it has come to pass and that I see the way in which he loves people and how he just approaches life every day, especially in the midst of all that's going on right now. He, my son does not know hate. He doesn't know prejudice. He doesn't know jealousy. He doesn't know really envy or anger. He, he really, and, and you know, people say, well, it's because he has special needs. No, I think it's because the way, um, the way that he looks at the world and his perspective is that, you know, every person deserves to be loved. And, um, he is he is just absolutely amazing and he has this this joy this you know childlike joy that we all should have where 
he knows what he loves to do and he makes sure he makes sure every day that he does those things. You know, he says, I love music, so I'm going to listen to music and dance or I like to do puzzles. I mean, how many of us don't spend time doing what makes us joyful because we're too busy? And Grant's not about that. He he just is such an encouragement to everybody. And one of the challenges that I did have with him, however, was there weren't a lot of programs as he got older of things for him to be a part of and it would either be something where you know he wasn't interested in it or he was too old or he you know was didn't fit the requirements and so I really struggled as a mom and felt very alone as other people were going to soccer games and involved with sports with their kids or and my older son was in the choir and you know there, I was like what what does Grant need you know he needs to find a passion and I didn't know how to um, find it for him. And so my older son was going to college and I really noticed that um, Grant's dad is very athletic and very muscular and into sports and everything. And I, I just never, I think we both never knew what to, to get Grant involved in. And so I decided that I was going to hire a personal trainer to work with him. And I was referred to a gentleman by the name of Daniel Ellis, who's in his 30s and just, you know, this stocky, muscular guy. And he walked in the first day to meet us. And I proceeded to overshare and tell him because I was going to work out with him as well that, you know, I was out of shape, slightly depressed, cancer survivor. And my son was handicapped. And, you know, and he looked at me like, what, how, what am I going to do with these two people? I have no idea. But um, since then, I've even, you know, created blogs and stories to tell people the friendship that formed between these two, my son Grant and this, this man, Daniel, once again proved that the power of one person, that when someone believes in you, um, it's amazing what can happen. And just like that doctor all those years ago, Daniel believes that Grant can do anything, that he can be extraordinary. And so over the past two and a half years, my son went from not being able to really squat or do, I mean, he really didn't even know how to do any exercises or do a push up to now running, jumping, um, cheering other people on. And, um, and so early on in our workouts, he's, he got this phrase from a, well, he would, he would do a countdown. And he would say five, four, three, two, one, and then we would start the exercise. And then he got this phrase, bam, from a Disney show. And so it morphed into five, four, three, two, one, but bam, do what you can. And Daniel and I were so moved by it as we shared. And he says it every time we work out. And it really, it started to catch on with people because, you know, ba-bam, we all want to live a ba-bam life. And Grant does live a ba-bam life. And he's already, he's identified what that means but also doing what you can every single day instead of focusing on what he can't do. Grant just does what he has, what he can. And he does it with a hundred percent effort and passion and excitement. And um, it's really it, in a short amount of time, it's kind of changed everything. He now has kind of a div divine mission and path and journey. And people tell me all the time when I post videos, they see him working so hard and it inspires them to do what they can in their life amazing yeah well i as you know i i have the shirt so i ordered the shirt online and talk about touching here's a handwritten note from grant and it says how to live a babam life and he has five things he's written out do your best never yeah. give up love people be kind get healthy love grant matthew howard 
Wow. I mean, that brings tears, it brought tears in my eyes this morning when I opened it. I'm like, oh my goodness. Like you said, it's a, it's a, he just wants to, he just wants to love. And when you see that, you just realize, wow. Wow. Yes. yes. And he's really what, you know, it kind of, when you talk about where I was compared to where I am now, you know, I just know that every single day I look at those five things and they're so simple. And I ask myself, I'm, are I, you know, am I doing those five things? And so it's amazing how, you know, Grant has become kind of my leader and um, people that see him that remember my dad always say, you know, he has a little bit of that don't give up spirit in him. And I just know that my dad would be right there, you know, high-fiving and celebrating with us because, you know, Grant is showing us the right way to live. What truly matters right now is, you know, being kind, loving people, doing your best and being healthy in mind, body, and spirit. And that's really all we can do. We can't control the circumstances of everything that's going around um, in the world right now, but we can every single day make a choice to live that Babam life, to believe that extraordinary things can happen and to not give up. And that's, you know, just really what we do in our house every single day. That's wonderful. So I want to talk about where you are now. So to me, like I said in the opening, you've picked up the mantle from your father and you now are, to me, you're, you're, the, you're, you're Jamie Valvano, the advocate and the speaker. Talk to me about what, do you, what, do you, what moves you now? What, what makes you go? Easy, without a doubt, people. Um, I, a couple years ago, decided I was gonna leave teaching and start traveling and speaking. And really, really acknowledging that my dad had left this amazing legacy and there were footsteps that I wanted to walk in and there was the next chapter that I wanted to tell, whether you even know who Jim Valvano is or not. When I stand up on a stage and I tell the story of what we've just talked about and, and um, his legacy and what I want to do now for my own children, people are inspired because every single person is surviving something. And not, there isn't a day that goes by that somebody doesn't reach out to me and say, you know, this is the struggle that I'm dealing with. This is the obstacle that I'm overcoming and seeing your video or watching your dad's SB speech or, you know, just hearing about something that you're doing in the community was inspirational. And, you know, I really, the only reason I think that people are inspired is because I'm just authentically sharing my journey and trying to love people and trying to be kind and listen to where they are. And so really, I, before um, COVID, I traveled and, and spoke all of the time. Now I'm kind of doing everything virtually, but like right now, now more than ever, yeah. because of this virtual um, world, people are feeling very disconnected and alone. And it's hard in a Zoom meeting to tell your boss or to tell a coworker, you know, I'm struggling, I'm feeling alone, or I'm isolated, or I'm having a hard time teaching my kids. Or So now more than ever, people, you know, really need uh, authenticity. They, you know, need to hear what it is that other people are doing to inspire them, you know, their families and others and how they can they can 
embrace their extraordinary. And so that's really what I do is I share that with whatever group invites me to speak to them. I chuckle because I speak to pharmaceutical companies and I speak at um, sports things and I'll also speak to, you know, financial groups and I'll, and I think, you know, what do all these people have in common and why do they want to listen to me? And what I realize it's because we're all just craving, we all have that human desire to feel significant and to know that what we're doing in life has an impact on other people and to just have that connection. And so really it's, you know, that's what I do is I just show people how, you know, what are, what has, what have I learned over the past 48 years, not only in my own life, but also from meeting such amazing people like Jim Balbano and like Grant Howard, you know, and people that are on our board at the B Foundation and um, just the people that I'm able to interact with is really the biggest blessing right now. And that's what keeps me going, knowing that there have been so many people along my journey that changed my course forever simply by speaking words of truth and love over me. And so if I can be that person if for someone else, if I can plant a seed in you, and let you know that it is too soon to quit and you cannot give up and you are an ordinary person, but you can live an extraordinary life. And if I can let you see into my brokenness and then also um, also witness the victory, then that's what it's all about. I mean, I think that's that's the legacy that that I want to leave behind. Last question, Jamie. I'd like you to kind of envision a younger version of yourself next to you. If you could give her a hug, what would you tell her? There may have been a day when I would have been critical of her, but looking back, I would just tell her how proud I am of, of the fact that she didn't give up. And I would just say good job, give her a high five and a hug. And um, I'm just proud of, you know, where we are today and so thankful that she decided not to throw in the towel.